I got that nerve inflammation which you can feel when I speak even now. First they suspect that it's a stroke, then, so that I don't forget something. Then I got some heart problems and they already thought they will have to handle call it. They put it in some plastic objects so that the brain doesn't get narrow. It was not that, but we were in a total panic. Then let's go down. My prostate turned bad, then my diabetes turned bad, and I already feel I go to my diabetician doctor. How? She, it's an old lady, looks at my feet like, oh, oh, oh you will soon be mine. We will. <laughs> so it was. Uh, yeah, oh sorry, I forgot something in the middle. Uh, in the middle of it, they discover uh, that I have cancer on my right kidney, you know, and I have to do an operation. It was really bad. Now it's getting better, but again, I simply have physical limitations. Jet lag, and I cannot be socially active for more than two, three hours, then I just get that tired. So my sincere apologies to you. You should have organized this 15 years earlier, <laughs> then you could have me for all the day, just talking. You know, because I still, since I talk too much, I still find it incredible how from time to time, when I give some classes, a student approaches me, would you be my analyst, you know? <laughs> my answer is double. First, uh, listen, can you imagine me just sitting there for more than 30 seconds and listening to you. Just <laughs> the guy. But more seriously, uh, like, it's said to be old, but another thing that I want to explain, and we can go on into it later in the debate. I was a little bit in a panic because I wasn't sure what type of a public will be here, so I will try to mix social topic with philosophy, not pure philosophy, but what I and my gang from Slovenia, my two, two friends, Alenka Zupancic, Naden Dolar, we are more and more focusing now on basic ontological philosophical problems. I philosophically oppose to that, how should I call it, historicist deconstructive term, which basically means Forget about these naive, old-fashioned philosophical questions. What is reality? How does the world exist independently of us? Are we free? And all that stuff. Did you notice how now we get generally a turn towards these basic questions, but till a couple of years ago, we had a certain type of historicism discursive historicism predominating. For me, the model of this, and he's a great thinker, I don't doubt this, Michel Foucault. For him, the ultimate horizon of thinking is what he calls episteme, a historically specified discursive formation. So, and I'm not kidding, it's literally like this. If you were, a, a friend of mine did that even once, if you were to ask Michel Foucault, do I have an immortal soul? His answer would have been, this question can only be meaningful within a certain historical formation of knowledge. So all we can do is describe that formation of knowledge which makes this type of question meaningful. So you are not even allowed to raise a direct <coughs> naive ontological question, okay, okay, but is my, do I really have a soul? In, and it's a legitimate operation. It's a very strong argument for them to say, you never ask such questions out of nowhere. We always talk out of or against the background of a certain historical formation of knowledge. And uh, I think this position is nonetheless ultimately, for philosophical reasons, inconsistent. For example, in my long-standing debates, personally I am in good relations with her, 
with Judith Butler, uh, we always end up at this point. She accuses me of being uh, not historicist enough, Kantian, like formulas of sexuation, this is kind of a transcendental a priori, I should historicize more. Then my counter-argument to her is always, you are describing a certain, let's call it, functioning of sexuality. We don't have fixed uh, sexual identities. Our sexual identity is a matter of performative, is a performative result of our discursive and bodily practices and so on and so on. It's ultimately contingent, not inscribed in any nature and so on and so on. And, and I'm, let me now make, before I go into this improvisation, something very clear. Uh, I'm not bluffing here when I ask her and you this type of question. It's very sincere, naively. I asked her a naive question, which nonetheless I think perplexed her a little bit. This notion, articulated long ago, okay, quarter of a century ago, a little bit more in her gender trouble, this, let's call it, theory of sexual identity as performative, constructed, ultimately contingent, and so on and so on. Is this an eternal fact? so that you can say the caveman was already discursively constructing his, her, its identity, or are you describing something that uh, really holds only for our time? Is your own, this model of sexuality as historically contingently constructed, is it itself historically specified but then you need another meta-theory, you know, to account. Or is it simply that, to put it in very brutal terms, it was all the time like this, also for the cavemen, they were just, I will be very blunt, stupid, and didn't know it. So that we live in a unique historical moment when we finally see something that was true all the time. And I remember, I was a little bit shocked, her answer to me was, Michel Foucault prohibits even to raise such questions. <laughs> well, he doesn't, I claim, because uh, he always emphasized, he, he knew what he was talking, Michel Foucault, when he, in his last series of books with all those history of sexuality, part two and three, uh, describing ancient Greek, early Roman, logic of pleasures and so on, he said something very important. He said, every history is ultimately the history of the present. That is to say, it's not just that we step on our shoulder and look into ancient Greece the way it really was. There must be something in our own epoch, and Foucault described this, the end of psychoanalysis or this paradigm of sexuality and so on and so on, the uncertainties, openness of our time, this is the experience from which we can see what he saw there. So again, my point is that nonetheless we cannot, or with Foucault, it's the same problem if you read him with his notion of power, the axis of his late teaching is of course knowledge and power strategies of power, and so on, and so on. Again, a naive question. Is this a trans-historical constant, or something uh, specific to our time? And it's nice to see how Foucault is ambiguous here. Sometimes he talks as if, again, to put it naively, the entire human history is the history of power strategies, and so on, and so on. But sometimes, in his early very popular book, which I think it's a very good book, although, and this is significant, it was never really popular, although it was very popular, but in theory, uh, Le Moy et Le Chose, which was here as uh, translated as, how was it here, the title of his? Sorry? The Order of Things. The Order of Things. 
it's a, a, a good title. Do you know that? Yeah. I read somewhere that Foucault first wanted to give it Lord de, de Chance in original, and then publisher opposed it, and he... Okay. There, he does something incredible. He basically provides a historical genesis of how this functioning of power came to be. So, it, he is oscillating here. Now, I know this is a very complex problem. Can we break out of this, I call it, transcendental approach, which is ultimately something that unites such opposite phenomena like Martin Heidegger's thought, deconstructionist, and so on. This idea that all we can ultimately do is to describe a historical discursive practice, or as Heidegger would have put it, disclosure of being, the horizon of meaning within thing which things appear to us in a certain way, is this all? So that, again, whenever you try to, sorry for vulgar metaphor, whenever you try to grab a philosopher to squeeze his balls, or I don't know what would be the feminine version of this metaphor, I don't enter it, he can always say, no, we cannot go beyond. And this is basically also, for example, Heidegger's attitude towards modern science. That, yeah, we learn wonderful things there, but in order to do a scientific research, nature already appears to you as an empirical entity ruled by mathematical laws and so on and so on. You are always within a certain horizon of being. My naive question is, is this all? So is ontology, in the naive sense of describing reality the way it is, independently of this transcendent place, uh, is this a legitimate question or no? To my surprise, I discovered that Heidegger himself was aware of this. In his late seminar on Heraclit from mid-60s, the late last years of his life, he says openly that this question, how are things outside their horizon of being? He was well aware he wasn't an idealist Heidegger. He didn't claim that the ontological event arises, horizon of being empirically creates things. It just makes things, reality appear within a certain horizon of meaning. How are things independently of this. He said, this is the great weakness of my thinking. I never tried even to formulate the question. And what I'm really trying to do, not just me, but in different ways, Palenkas of Nabendolar, and so on and so on, is to raise this question without regressing into naive realism. And that's, we don't have time to go into it now, but that's my big reproach to object-oriented ontology. They precisely pretend to, as it were, step out of our own skin and describe, as Graham Harman puts it, uh, we humans are just one among the objects in the world. We can be a more important object or whatever. Okay, it's totally legitimate, I think, to raise here the question, where do you stand when you say this? In order to be able to say this, you are no longer just a human being. It is as if you can step out from where and look at reality the way it really is. Uh, and uh, uh, I, So I think I don't buy that turn towards simple, objective realism. Let's describe reality the way it is. I think this may surprise you that the girl, not girl, lady, I don't know how old she is, and I apologize, I didn't mean it in a patronizing way. Uh, 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 Joan or Jane, I always confuse uh, Pride and Prejudice with her, who wrote Vibrant Matter and New Materialism? Jane Bennett. Jane Bennett, yes. 
Uh, ah, I know why I'm making this mistake. John Bennett is my favorite Hollywood fan fatale, you know. Dirty <laughs> But uh, now she is, I pretty much admire her description of, let us say, a trash site as an impersonal complex of its own, where human debris, remainders interact with poisons, with insects, whatever, and so on and so on. But I think it's clearly anthropomorphic. Precisely when we try to describe in this sympathetic way reality the way it is, we are usually very deep in anthropomorphizing it. And she is aware of it. I quote her. She is, uh, she is deeply aware of it. She admits it. So, how to solve this problem? How to break out of the transcendental horizon without regressing into some type of ultimately pre-modern naive realism. I will not bore you with this, read my last books. I claim that uh, on the path of Hegel, reading Hegel through Lacan and so on and so on, we can find a unique original way here, a way which does the job. It's, to put it very simply, to just give you the coach, it's uh, wrong to answer how is reality independently of us. The true problem is how, can, how do we fit reality? How is something like human thought possible in reality? Our contact with reality, the way it is in itself, whatever we call it, is not erase yourself and present an objective image, like in quantum physics and so on and so on. No, the problem is precisely uh, the problem is precisely to see basically what do we humans mean for reality? How do we fit in it? That moment, I will not get lost here, it would have meant too much. It's repeatedly I cope with this in all of my last books. So, now, let me go finally to the topic, and I propose, if Antonio, this is okay for you, I will simply go on talking, improvising, and then, at a certain level, I'm sorry that you don't have, I think the only way to contain me is to do, did you see, okay, it's an old one, it's not, for most of you, a movie of your generation, of course, uh, uh, this, the, the, the third, I think, James Bond movie, Goldfinger. You know where Goldfinger drives a car? No, sorry, James Bond, it has that famous red button. <laughs> he presses it and you know. <laughs> Maybe next time you allow me to talk here, I don't to control when I talk too much. Um, uh, okay, so uh, I will just go on. I would like to begin with something I warn you, there will be some provocations, but consciously, I would like to solicit the debate a little bit along the lines of what we improvise briefly in the morning. 200 years of the birth of Marx. Okay, but we should ask the naive question, is Marx still alive? Which is a wrong, arrogant question. Marx is alive if not if we find something in him, but if he, he can tell us something about ourselves. The trick is, if we read our modern society through the eyes of Marx, does this still tell us something? But I'm not a naive Marxist. My answer is yes and no. Why? I'm sorry if you heard this joke applied to Marx. I used it in a short text published, and it's an old joke. I think the greatest legacy of communism, cultural, were political jokes, which disappeared now. And it's one of the classical Soviet jokes about the Jew Rabinovich, and they had a legendary radio station in jokes only. There is a real Radio Erevan. It's a capital of Georgia, uh, I think. Uh, uh, no, or doesn't matter. So, uh, the, uh, uh, which 
the joke is that people ask their questions and the radio always answer in the same way. In principle, yes, but. The most famous answer is somebody calls radio station and says, is it true that the Jew Rabinovich uh, won a new car on state lottery? And the radio answers, in principle, it's true, just it wasn't a new car, but an old bicycle, and if he didn't win it, it was stolen from him. <laughs> I think, unfortunately, it's pretty much the same with Marx. Is Marx still actual? In principle, yes, but. And I will just try to elaborate today some of these buts. Others are obvious, like the whole problem of which is the proletarian subject, the emancipatory subject today, and so on and so on. One would have been, uh, you know, Marx's well-known definition of religion as the opium of the people. Marx is more subtle than it may appear here. He doesn't say for the people, because this implies a naive position, as if there are some evil servants of those in power who manipulate and offer, uh, pro produce religion. No, religion is opium of the people, authentically experienced by them. So, the first thing we can, in a very productive way, I claim, elaborate here is that Marx has to be supplemented that, okay, with some fundamentalisms and so on, religion is still, to some extent, the opium of the people. But isn't that today we have two other opiums of the people? And if you know some of my latest comments, you know the joke that's coming. These two new opiums of the people are precisely opium and the people. <laughs> opium is getting, by opium, I don't mean just literally opium, but the whole industry of drugs in both senses, medical drugs and drugs like opium, uh, crack or whatever. It is as if, and it's not limited to a narrow one or two percent. I read somewhere already ten years ago that in American academia, generally, around six, six, seven, 60 to 70 percent of people there, professors, students, use either Xanax or whatever, some kind of drugs. And this is a wonderful paradox. At the same time, how do these drugs function? First, if we are overexcited, bombarded by experiences, too excited, some threats, traumatic, they calm us down. But then they are used also for exactly the opposite purpose. When you are depressed, inactive, it's to resuscitate you again. Okay. That's another topic. What interests me also, this is the first opium of the people, opium, as the name for all the time. The second one is people itself. This is the new right-wing, alt-right, whatever, populism. We have it in you and so on. Precisely, it, people are, for populists, the opium for the people. This imaginary presentation, we are one united people whose function is to drag you to make you ignore all the antagonisms that cut across the people because in populism as a rule the enemy always comes from somewhere outside. It's for Trump fundamentalists and so on either, I don't know, the corrupted new left cultural, like for Jordan Peterson it's cultural Marxism, some external, or it's the immigrant threat and so on and so on things get, get, get more complex, but I think that that's the first thing to do. The second thing about Marx, you know the famous description in Communist Manifesto, and Marx means it basically almost in a positive way, that that's the great result of capitalism, that as Marx puts it, it dissolves everything solid melts into the air. Capitalism resolves all traditional, patriarchal, authoritarian, social relations, and so on, and so on, and so on. I think that Ma the problem with Marx here is that he was more right than he could have imagined. Isn't the whole LGBT movement, and uh, please, 
to avoid a misunderstanding, I will this time not make fun of it. This is a great achievement. That, uh, I think that uh, LGBT plus also, and so on, and ecology today prove that it's not only all patriarchal social relations that melt into thin air. They lose their natural given character and stability. Also, our innermost sexual identity and even nature itself. The result of today's technology and so on is that nature itself, that's what Anthropocene means. We can, nature is no longer what it was till now in human history. The stable background that somehow will put things back in balance. And we always said, okay, we can pollute this river, do this, do that, but somehow all of it will find a new... We could count on nature being remaining the same. I think, although I hate these references to some original wisdom, I admire here nonetheless ancient, I don't know who did this, I think both Aztecs or Incas, who saw that it's not as simple as that. You know, Jacques Lacan noticed somewhere. What's so surprising about those rituals that they have with human sacrifices and so on? For what were they sacrificing? Not what you would have expected to, so that something out of order would be, for example, you don't get rain, let's kill 50 children or prisoners or whatever, virgins, and uh, maybe there will be rain. No, they sacrificed, they feel the need to make human sacrifices so that the most ordinary, regular things would, to make it sure that they will happen again and again. They sacrifice so that sun will arise next, mor next morning and so on and so on. In some sense, they were right, I claim. In what sense? From today's ecological experience, it's not just that we screwed nature. I mean, screwed it up in the sense of uh, uh, destabilizing it. But we can see retroactively that there never was a true natural balance. I am opposed to this uh, anthropocentric ecology. It says basically nature has its balance, stability, homeostasis, and then we arrogant humans screwed it up. If you look at the history, even of life of, of our Earth, think about what? Uh, think about just our main sources still of energy, coal and oil. Can you even imagine what kind of mega ecological catastrophes must have happened on our Earth so that Earth produced these reserves. So, Earth may be our mother, but it's a dirty bitch of a mother. <laughs> crazy. There is, we don't have any natural balance to return to. Going back to this fluidity of sexual identities. Here, I again had a very friendly debate with Judith Butler. The problem, years ago, the problem was this one. That's, I told her, and again, uh, she probably thinks she gave me a good answer. I don't think. Namely, my question to her was the following one. She describes a certain constitution of subjectivity. It's no longer patriarchal, stable, fixed identities. It's fluid. Everybody can... You can reconstruct yourself, play performative games, all that stuff. My, yes, he simply, she simply doesn't agree with my diagnosis, but I agree with myself. <laughs> it's that what she is describing, the type of subjectivity, this fluid, reinventing itself, deconstructing, uh, and so on itself, changing identities, that it's nothing subversive. It, she is simply, for example, in gender trouble, describing the predominant form of, let's use this bombastic term, late capitalist mode of subjectivity. 
Then she exploded and said, what about Trump, alt-right, uh, neoconservative Christian fundamentalist? My answer is, maybe I'm wrong. Yes, but they are a reactive phenomenon. In a way, as LGBT demonstrated, what fascinated me with LGBT, and this isn't an argument against, although maybe a little, is, did you notice how LGBT was instantly accepted by top businesses? Name them, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Elon Musk, all were instantly for it. Now, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm not saying that if they support it, it must be reactionary and so on. I'm just saying that, that uh, in this project of denaturalizing human sexuality, making it something uh, contingently constructed and so on and so on, first, I don't believe in the revolutionary potential of it. I can imagine a late capitalist society with all this fluidity, reconstruct identity and so on, where precisely all these abilities of yours to reconstruct yourself, change your identity, are perfectly commodified and so on. I, I don't believe there is something very subversive in it. But I have two, three other problems, very respectful ones, in the sense that I'm not making fun of LGBT, but that's precisely my point. Let's go through it. My first problem with LGBT is sometimes they engage in what Judith Butler is not doing. She is very intelligent. But sometimes, you know, what interests me, how a certain ideology gets popular, starts to work, you have this idea that LGBT means that we should playfully change our identities, you know, today you are gay, tomorrow you are bisexual, and so on and so on. Now here I react with all my theoretical respect, I immediately made it, make it clear why. I react on behalf of LGBT people. Uh, yes, in some sense we are free, uh, our sexual orientation identity is not given to us. But here I remember again the legacy of German idealism, Schelling, not Hegel, who developed in a wonderful way how the highest act of freedom, the most radical choice, is an unconscious choice. You know, choice at the most radical level of existential choice, where it's not the choice, let's go to sweet store, who I want strawberry cake or chocolate cake. It's the choice of who I am. This choice is never done in this easy way. Oh, let's look around. Let's, to, this week I will play being gay, then I am bisexual, then I don't know, screw animals, whatever you want. No, it's, a, it's like the structure of love. If there is a free choice, it's love. In the sense of you don't really, you, love cannot be enforced. Nobody can order you fall in love. Love is free. But did you notice if you are truly in love, how exactly like that, love, you experience it as your fate. You never are in a moment when you say, I'm sorry for your sanity, don't take it personally. Okay, I want to fall in love. Let's look around. I'm sorry, since I'm heterosexual. A nice girl there, a nice girl there, there, but I like her hair, I like her breasts, I like her eyes. So let's make a list. <laughs> you don't fall, you all of a sudden, in your subjective experience, you all of a sudden discover that you are already in love. You assume the choice already made. And I think even at the deepest level. This is how great political choices happen. For example, the big choice, your country is occupied. Will I fight or not? If you decide to fight, you do it because you experience the pressure to fight for freedom as your innermost necessity. I wouldn't like to die but I cannot live with myself. I cannot look into the mirror in the morning if I don't uh, join the fight. So where does transgender enter here? I met 
some transgender people with whom, incidentally, I have very good relations, seriously, and they told me that this exactly is what holds for them. Can you imagine, for example, when you do a transgender operation? This is extremely painful. You suffer and so on. So, if they still insist on doing it, it's because the change of sex or whatever is for them experienced precisely as a free choice, as a tremendous pressure. They are ready to literally cut their body in order to actualize the identity that they have chosen. So, first, let's not play with it early. You know, the lesson of transgender, it's all one happy dance, we change identities and so on and so on. It's a very tough thing. The second thing, nonetheless, when we have this fluidity of multiple sexual or whatever gender uh, identity, it's not the same, but I will not bore you with this here, identities and so on and so on. I want to repeat here closely a line of thought, which is already in my last book, but it will be more expansively in my next book. Uh, uh, the illusion that I sometimes detect there is how, okay, they are totally right, I agree with it, there is no fixed sexual identity and so on and so on, but they read this in the following way, the se binary sexual identity, male identity, masculine identity, feminine identity, uh, they are hegemonic in our patriarchal societies and the idea is, I simplify it, but this is how it functions. Uh, I, that is supposed to be the original trans, uh, LGBTQ+, whatever experience. I don't, cannot recognize myself in any of these identities. I don't, cannot adopt as my existential choice to be a man or a woman the way they are defined by our predominant ideology, I totally subscribe to this. But uh, then they try to supplement this with a wider description, like I got lists of 30, 35 identities, butch, queer, uh, uh, transgender, asexual, bisexual, trisexual, whatever. Of course, you have to have some kind of identity. I accept this just uh, I claim that sexuality is in itself antagonistic. So let's not replace one identity with a wider identity. And then say, if we just enlarge the list, you know, if instead of two gender identities we get 35, then everything will be okay, everyone can choose. And here the infamous plus enter, which I think is the most interesting part of LGBTQ plus movement. I'm really for them here. This is Hegel in practice. We just should not read it in an empiricist way. The empiricist way is simply, okay, we give a list of LGBT whatever 30, 40 identities, but is this empiricist worry of classification? We cannot ever be sure, did we cover all of them, so it's like maybe other identities, we shouldn't be oppressive, maybe other identities will emerge, so let's leave it open. You know, it's like when you enumerate all things in a certain category, you et, et, et cetera, you know, like let's leave it open. My paradoxical solution here, a Hegelian one, and interestingly enough, I know some LGBT okay, transgender people who are aware of this, they are my Hegelian friends, is what about to be, what if plus is not simply just a shorthand for all new identities to be discovered, what if we can be a plus directly? And I think human subjectivity basically is a plus. Or to put it in another way, in the last list of identities proposed that I've read, I noticed 
there are three categories which obviously stick out. Asexual, allied, and questioning. First, they cheat with allied. It's not really a sexual gender identity. It simply means straight, old, normative, heterosexual people who are sympathetic towards us, open to us. They cheat here. This is just say not all heterosexual are bad. There are some horror allies. Then you have uh, asexual. It's interesting because with all the paradoxes that this involves, they are right. To be asexual is an immanent part of being sexual. Sexuality, precisely as antagonistic, always has an option of asexuality. This is how and, uh, we had this already in Soviet Union, in that utopian era of 1920s, and now it's returning, this idea that the ultimate result of the struggle for the liberation of sexuality will be liberation from sexuality. You have now people who claim that in Ray Kurzweil's style of uh, of uh, uh, of uh, 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 that uh, unique uh, post-human state, singularity, where will be or one, but also more applied ways how we are entering a new stage of post-humanity where reproduction will be done in non-sexual way and it's an open question what remains of sexuality and more and more people simply advocate the end of sexuality, claiming sexuality as such is objectivizing means objectivizing another human being and so on and so on. So it's a legitimate topic. And the last one, questioning. Like, basically, you don't know what you are. You are questioning your identity. What I claim is that this questioning attitude is part of sexuality as such. Sexuality functions only through such questioning. Sexual identity as a man or as a, or I wouldn't say even as a man, masculine, feminine, is just different type of question. And we should keep this, uh, we should keep this absolutely open. Why? Because, and here I would like to react what was said this morning a little bit benevolently that my identity is pervert and so on and so on. Maybe, but I'm not responsible for the title of the, those movies, Pervert's Guide to. It's Sophie Vines who suggested this to me, and I said, okay, if it works well commercially, fuck it. But I'm not there. I think, and this is one of the dark legacies of 68 liberation sector, where I remember, I was very under, the idea was this one. Women, this is the subtle anti-feminist aspect of it. Women are hysterical, which means they, they just provoke the master secretly. They want a new master, a stronger master. The truly heroic position is a pervert. A pervert, as they say, actually does what? Hysterical and pervert is basically a man. There is a great debate in psychoanalysis if feminine perversion exists at all. The idea is that a pervert su subject does, again, what hysterical subjects only dream about in an ambiguous way. I think that both Freud and Lacan totally opposed this version. That, you know, hysteria is the position of questioning. And for Lacan and Freud already, they, they never, through psychoanalysis, never dismisses feminine hysteria as no, a man should come to set in order the house, confused, questioning, and so on and so on. No. Hysterical questioning is the origin of it all, even the origin of critique of ideology. Because, as Lacan points out so nicely, what is the original hysterical question? It's not, I don't know what I desire, not nothing empirical. No, it's not which object is my true object, and then we have this infinite metonymy, metonymy, sorry, never there. The original hysterical question is, what kind of object I am? 
even in the most naive, it may sound anti-feminist way, we get this with this eternal feminine question, and it's an authentic question, you know, which some men find annoying. Woman says, you say you love me, but tell me why do you love me? This eternal, tell me why do you love me? It's an authentic question. The question is precisely what kind of an object I am for you. It's radical questioning. In contrast to a pervert who never questions. A pervert knows what's good for you. He knows better than you what's good for you. That's why he can, this is the basic pervert structure. I torture you because I know better than you what's good for you, so I torture you really to help you, better for you, and so on. So to go on, uh, that's why already Freud says something very interesting. <coughs> he says that it's not true that in perversion we lay our unconscious bare. No, he says nowhere is our unconscious more hidden, inaccessible than in perversion. First result. Second result, as Lacan puts it nicely, far from being subverted, perversion is really a hidden part of a power edifice. Every power to reproduce itself needs a hidden perverse supplement. Okay, sometimes this supplement comes open like you in the United States with Trump, it's Trump is kind of uh, more complex. But uh, what, I want, what I want to say is that it's time maybe to adopt this old-fashioned position and to, uh, to celebrate hysteria, which is basically feminine, as the founding gesture of subjectivity. In contrast to those who think man is subject, woman is an object. No, Lacan knew it well. This hysterical self-questioning is, as it were, the origin of subjectivity. And Lacan makes it this clear when, in his type, di different discourses, you know, uh, master, university, observational analyst, he claims that only the hysterical subject through questioning really produces new knowledge. University is then the classification and so on of the established knowledge, but at its creative moment, science is definitely hysterical. Now you will say, but there is an analyst. Analyst is absolutely not uh, sexed as male. If you want to sexualize Lacan's four types of discourses, it is clear that we have the male couple, master, and uh, university, and we have the feminine couple, Hysteric, uh, hysteric and, uh, and, uh, and analyst. But remember, for Lacan, it's not that the analyst is the ultimate goal. The analyst is basically non-productive. The analyst is just a stupid object of transference, a screen which allows the productivity, the productivity of the of the uh, of the subject. Okay, let's go on. I'm a little bit uh, losing time. The next thing I wanted to develop, if you allow me, is uh, something, uh, now comes the trigger one. It will be something, maybe, it will offend you a little bit, very problematic, but please, give me, trust me, at the end, the term will be critical and absolutely pro-feminist. But I say this to provoke you. I Precisely because subjectivity is, I am a subject on, only on condition that I don't know what for an object I am, what for an object of desire, precisely. And now this brings us to, to uh, the problem of objectivization. I think that one of the confusions in Me Too, and again, I totally support Me Too. I'm not one of those. Catherine Deneuve and, I don't know, Germain Greer, who claim they are too radical now, Me Too, we should be more pragmatic, and so on. No, I think the problem with Me Too is, again, that it's not radical enough. Uh, you know, one of these standard complaints is men 
objectivize will. Uh, I'm tempted to say, I hope they do, and I hope that they objectivize each other at ma as much as possible. True sadist domination is not objectivizing, but it's a terrifying, fake, violent subjectivization. I will try to explain it. First, let me tell you something totally naive. Sexuality involves objectivization. If you are a girl, it's totally legitimate if you are heterosexual, if you are lesbian, even better. Of course, you want to seduce a guy. And of course, you want to appear attractive to him. And of course, you, in this sense, objectivize yourself. I don't see anything anti-feminist humiliating in this. Men are doing the same, and so on. The trick is, are you allowed to objectivize yourself as part of your strategy? If you look at ideological fundamentalism, why do they, for example, for example, I don't want to go into Islamophobia, this is not my position, but why this covering up of women in much of Islam? Precisely their ultimate horror is that the women will objectivize themselves, appear active sexual agents, not under male control. What I mean in this way, what I mean. Let me, uh, now comes the trigger warning. Now you should plug it in, include it. Once I spoke with friends about something, I'm sorry if it will hurt you, about uh, something pretty obscene. What would have been, and please believe me, not because only I'm old, I never really watched hardcore pornography. Not because I am conservative or whatever, but it's for me, it always was sexually so depressive, you know, like, for me, on the contrary, if you think too much about sexuality, I would say, download a really cheap, depressing, hardcore movie, and it should turn you off, like, uh, but I debated with friends who had more experience in this about uh, what would have been the, let's call it very naively, the ty typical archetypal hardcore male, heterosexual, hardcore scene. And we, my friends who know the stuff, told me there is one precise shot which fits it. It's like this. Here I apologize again for the third time. Imagine a woman is lying on bed with her legs up, spread. A man is penetrating here, her. You see, this is why it's so complicated how they construct it. It must be very unpleasurable. You have to see penetration, but now comes the crucial point. You will always find it. Be careful for it. <laughs> her legs, that's why man has to be a little bit on the side. You should see her face. She looks into the camera, displaying her pleasure. She breaks this basic rule of fiction cinema. You know that the actor, if it's not a subjective shot, the actor shouldn't look into the camera. She does it. And her duty is to bear witness of her. I'm cannot imitate the, uh, okay, the, the sound, you know, that, that she is really enjoying. So let's, in a very simple way, analyze this scene. The man is the one who is truly objectivized, instrumentalized. You, I was shown some short movies where you literally don't even see the man's face. Fuck him, he's nothing. His duty is hard on, bam, 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 that's it. And at the end, through ejaculation, he has to prove that it's for the real. The only subjectivity, in a very active sense, in the sense addressing you as another subject, you, the male, uh, the male viewer, is the woman. The woman is not an object, but it's something much worse. It's an enforced, brutally imposed subjectivization. And that's how also sadism works. 
sadism, even when it appears just to torture you, objectivize you. No, it objectivizes you in order to humiliate you as a subject. The whole pleasure of, of uh, sadism is not, you are an object for me, but you are an object for me and this is horrible for you as a subject and I want to see your shame, your suffering, and so on and so on. So I claim that the whole point of religious oppression or this uh, sexism and so on, it's always this, this surplus of enforced subjectivization. No male chauvinist wants a woman just as an object in the simple sense of enjoying and so on. No, you want this to see how this makes her feel humiliated and so on. You want to see her broken, her broken uh, subjectivity. Okay, now uh, I will censor myself. We started at six, okay, I still have time. I I'm not yet there, uh, because I have many more things uh, to say. So, okay, uh, the next thing, I will jump uh, out of this. Uh, I mean, I jump to my next point. I will jump a little bit here. Uh, uh, then this crazy situation, what type of ideology, how should we reply to it? Now I would like to introduce another, but I will be very brief here, I don't want to lose time, a wonderful Hegelian category of objective humor. Hegel criticizes very violently what he calls subjective humor, which for Hegel means you want to be wiser than your target and you just display your brilliance, making fun of, and so on and so on. Hegel rejects this, but he is not simply saying, no, we must see reality. We must see all these humorous reversals and so on in reality itself. What if reality itself is crazy enough? I will not go into it. I don't have time. I want to conclude soon. Uh, just to give you an idea, that's why I think I find so problematic all this John Stewart, John Oliver, eternal sport of American liberals making fun of Trump all the time. I mean, uh, you cannot beat Trump here. Trump is already his own human. What he is, let's focus just on what Trump is doing and you get the biggest joke, if you want to think. I mean, for me, our late capitalist reality is in some sense full of comical reversals. One big joke. For example, one of the biggest jokes in, in unemployment, how, and this is a genius of today's ideology. Uh, I don't know how it is in the United States, but in my country, Slovenia, almost half of the workers are already precarious workers. You uh, don't have a permanent job, you have to care for contracts every, every couple of months and so on. You know what's the genius of the ruling ideology? This, which is for you at least basically, if you are not a successful artist or what, it's a source of permanent anxiety. They sell you this as your freedom. No, we are all self-entrepreneurs. Oh, you, have, you can reinvent yourself with a new contract. Isn't this something, a wonderful cynical joke? Your very freedom is the form of your, as it were, additional, uh, additional slavery and so on and so on. Let me go on. I'm just now giving you short insights so that I will somehow cover it all. My next topic is that something is happening today which is the technological background, if you are, on this, of this permanent fluidity of sexual identities. That's why I find very interesting video games. No, I'm too stupid, too old, I don't play them. My son beats me instantly. And here I have a kind of a friendly, they're my best friends, but mockingly racist attitude 
beware of Koreans, they are the best in the world. My son who plays this through the web with all around the world, he said, the moment Koreans enter the game, we are lost. But what I want to say is that, why, and are you aware even how important this is? It's incredibly important, these games. Because are you aware that these games already turn around more money than movies and TV combined? It's the central ideological apparatus. And what interests me is that a certain type of subjectivity <coughs> emerges there. It's what I call a pre-edible, although it's not really pre-edible, undead subjectivity. You know, the basic logic of video games is you die, you can start again. It's really what I described all the time in my work, like this identity that you find in Marquis de Sade, where you have the same undeadness. You know, like, Juliette is tortured. In the next scene, she is again there in all beauty and so on. You find a little bit of this even in hardcore pornography, where did you know?